It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast in association with Davy. It's amazing what you discover when you really listen. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Later in the show, you'll hear from Donna Kilmurray, Chief Investment Officer of Davy, about the latest state of play in the markets. He tells me about some of the winners and losers in the pandemic and the options available to those who are nearing retirement and who want to avoid risk. But first, I spoke with Greg Gormley, the owner of the Little Ass Burrito Bar in Dublin. Since the lockdown in March, his Mexican food restaurant has largely been focused on takeaway. COVID forced him to cancel two planned restaurant openings in Dublin, but he's now feeling confident enough to open in Temple Bar. So I began by asking him how COVID has impacted on the business and his plans for expansion. Now, Greg Gormley, thank you for joining Inside Business. Little ass burrito bar might be familiar to people who are knocking around uh, or were knocking around Temple Bar pre-pandemic. Um, you took an equity stake in the business last year and you had expansion plans uh, for the franchise, for the brand uh, this year. But obviously the pandemic has, has put a hold on that. So just take us back to March. What were your plans and how did COVID impact on that? Great, Kieran. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, Kieran, I got involved in the business in January 2019. Um, I had been involved with Philip Martin, the original founder, looking at the business, looking at strategies to expand. So I kind of got involved in the day-to-day running of it. Um, there was obviously legacy issues. And, you know, when I, when I had a close look at margins and stuff like that, we weren't just quite ready to expand. So... Look, I thought it'd be quicker than it was, but of November last year, we, we were ready to go. So we started looking at a number of sites. So at the start of this year, we agreed to take two sites, one in Ballsbridge and one in Dublin too. Now, we were literally ready to sign and COVID hit. So lucky enough, you know, we hadn't signed and we were able to step away. So what we did, we closed like everybody else. We had a huge amount of uncertainty, but look, we reopened Um in April for takeaway, and then we reopened fully on the 29th of June. And thank God, touch wood, we're, we're back at pre-COVID levels uh, on sales. We're we're managing it well. And look, I, I've made the decision, rightly or wrongly, that now is the time to expand. So we have taken a lease in Temple Bar. Um, it's It works well from my perspective and the landlord that it's based on turnover. So, you know, if we do well, the landlord does well. And if we don't, well, hopefully we won't, but uh, we will do well. But it works for the landlord. So, 
you know, myself and the landlord, we, we've nearly become business partners instead of tenant and landlord. Um, and what I would propose when we get this open in the next two weeks, that we will start looking for another site and try to open potentially three or four between now and, you know, Q1, Q2 next year. Well, that's very interesting, uh, the partnership that you mentioned with the landlord, because we've seen just this week uh, a dispute between Footlocker and its landlord on Grafton Street. And I think we're probably going to see many more of these uh, disputes ending up in court. And the landlord is essentially saying, um, pay the rent. You have a contract, pay the rent. I need the money. Uh, and Footlocker is saying, well, we've been closed or we've been largely closed and we can't, you know, we can't afford to pay the rent with no income uh, coming in. So it's a really... It's a really strained dynamic um, that has emerged between a lot of tenants and landlords. So very interesting that you've come up with a different model going forward. Yeah, Kieran, like when, when I was originally looking at expanding, you know, as I say, Q4 last year, early this year, you know, upfront payments to acquire, to step into leases and big rents were the norm. And, you know, at the time we were happy to do it. So I think you're right, unfortunately, for a number of um, retailers and hospitality people in town, you know, these big upfront payments, which, which, you know, they were willing to pay in the high rents are going to cause trouble. And, you know, you don't like to see, you know, other people falling away, but I, I do think there's going to be an opportunity for a little ass. We've no doubt that we're going to be able to step into some of these leases and, Certainly, I can't see or look, I, I certainly wouldn't be willing to sign up to a big 5, 10, 15 year lease on a rent at the moment. I think the only way is to, to work as a percentage of turnover. And as I say, look, God willing, a business does well, potentially the landlord will, will earn more than if it was just a straight lease. So I do think that is the model that people are going to use going forward. So tell us about your experience in Takeaway, because you say that you're at pre-COVID levels now. I don't know how many um, seats you would have had in store, for example, and how much of your business pre-COVID would have, been, would have been Takeaway anyway. So maybe just explain that to us. Yeah, Kerr, we, we were a small store in um, Rathmines, so we would have had about 20 seats. Um, we're down now, we're, we're obviously doing just Takeaway now, but pre-kind of the last couple of weeks, level three, we would have had about six in the store. So to be honest... That hasn't really affected us. Now, pre-COVID, Thursday, Fridays would have been big lunch. We would have had a lot of people in. So we, we do miss that. But we are big. Deliveroo is obviously a big partner of ours. Um, you know, pre-COVID, they were still, but particularly now, during COVID, um, Deliveroo have become a big partner. Like I was just looking there for last week. Our sales were up 11% on Deliveroo against the previous week. You know, we did 313 orders we had a rating of 4.6, which is excellent, which is always positive. And we had 89 new customers in the week last week. So that's just showing, you know, we're consistently building new customers, which is great. You want to keep on the old ones, but, um, but I think it's important to be getting new ones as well. And you're planning to open in Temple Bar this month, which I guess is a brave decision because, you know, Dublin City Centre, all the stories you hear, it's been hollowed out. There are no offices, well, no, no people in offices, not many anyway, um, and no tourists around. Yeah, uh, Kieran, yeah, some people probably say I'm a bit mad, but look, I have to look back over the last 12 months of pre-COVID, would I have been able to get into Temple Bar? The answer is no. Would I have been able to get a deal now where I'm paying a percentage of turnover? Again, the answer is no. So, you know, I'm not saying I'm going to have to, to hopefully not carry the business, but yeah, look, there's going to be a bit of uncertainty um, over the next number of months. You're right, there's no, uh, there's no tourists down there at the moment. 
There's very few people. But again, we're, we're going to be pushing our social media and our Deliveroo platform that we're going to get access to places like Christchurch, Dublin One, Smithfield, which we don't have at Arath Mines. So, you know, my only real cost that I'll have to manage is staff because, you know, rent is obviously going to be, as I said, on a percentage of turnover. And the rest, our suppliers work very closely with us, so we're able to order daily. So really, it's the staff is the one that will just have to manage. And, and I'm hopeful, you know, when we get down there and we get in, our delivery business will, will keep us going. But I do believe I've the, I've the kind of contrarian view that, look, when this does, God willing, pass, and hopefully it will, people will get back into offices and people will get back into town. So, you know, if I have to maybe, if we have to sit and just kind of manage Temple Bar for six to 12 months, I do think it would be a decision that was uh, worth taking when we look back in 12 to 18 months. Right, Greg, have you been able to tap any government supports uh, during the pandemic, either for App Mines or the new store in Temple Bar? Yeah, Kieran, we've actually been very... Well, look, obviously the wage subsidy was a huge, you know, um, that made a big difference. Lucky enough, when we got back, uh, because we were at pre-COVID now, we're, we're off the wage subsidy. But, you know, the, the Dublin City grants have been very good. Um, we got the first one, um, which is around... I can't quite remember, four and a half, five thousand. Then we got another one there at the end of August, the same. So, you know, while it's not a huge amount of money for a small business, that significantly helps cash flow. Um, so to be honest, that's where we are. I'm looking across at a number of the, the microfinance loan at the moment. I may look at that. But yeah, we, we, we have found, you know, that the, that the government have been helpful and we've been able to get opened. And, and thank God, we're, as I said, we're, we're back up and running. We have the budget next week, Greg. Uh, is there anything that the government should be doing for a business like yours? Any measures they should introduce for a, a company like Little Ass um, Burrito Bar that might help? Um, for example, on uh, VAT. Yeah, look, I think VAT is a big one. And look, when you're running a kind of a small cash flow business, you know, VAT is always an issue. When each time it comes up, you're always struggling to get it paid. So I think any help they can give there... And, and look, the wage subsidy, you know, lucky enough, we don't have to, to use it at the moment. I think it's important it stays because I've even noticed now since, since the kind of leak on Sunday night that we were going to level five and then the kind of furore that came with that, we've actually dropped off on sales this week. We, we have noticed it now. Monday and Tuesday of this week have been our worst Monday and Tuesday since we opened. Now, they're still okay but, but that's what you're dealing with. You know, you, you think everything's fine and that just needs a little bit of uncertainty like that and all of a sudden there's a nervousness back out. So, you know, while I hope to not have to, uh, to use the wage subsidy, I think it's important that that stays for the foreseeable future for, so that companies, if they do need it, can rely on it. Yeah, I mean, it must be a pretty competitive business in takeaway at the minute and deliveries. It was competitive before COVID, but every restaurant uh, nearly has turned to some form of takeaway or delivery. How do you manage that? How do you, how do you sort of uh, keep ahead of the competition? Yeah, again, you know, there's been no great sides rating pre or during COVID. We, we just got opened. We have a very loyal following in Rath Mines. Like when I got involved in the business, I was like, oh God, I'd love to be in the centre of town. Now, you know, being just outside, like a place that mines has been great because there is offices, um, small, so that slowly they've started to come back, you know, keeping social distance, obviously. There is still a good lot of people moving around Rath Mines. And, and there's also, as I say, a lot of chimney pots. So again, from the delivery perspective, you know, 
we're lucky enough, we're, we're still getting the good lunch crowd, we're getting the people passing, which I say has dropped slightly over the last few days, obviously, with what's got on, but and then delivery again in the evening. So, you know, when, when I got involved in Little Ass, you know, the, the, the three reasons I suppose I did was because we, we have a very good offering. Um, all our food, all our ingredients are freshly prepared and we have a very good, loyal customer base. So the two of them have kind of meant, you know, that we've been able to get back out there and hold our place. Um, we are more expensive than a lot of the Mexican burrito bars around but that hasn't negatively affected us during COVID. You know, people are willing to pay for quality. Sure. Now, you qualified as a chartered accountant with KPMG, um, and you worked in corporate finance and wealth management. Uh, I know you worked with Key Capital. I think you were involved with uh, Deloitte as, as well. So how does somebody with that kind of background end up as an equity owner in a burrito bar? Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting one. And, and to be honest... I've always liked retail and I'd looked at other businesses to get involved in. It was looking outside in, it seems a lot easier. I'd be the first to say it. As I said, if you look at my kind of business plan for, you know, nearly two years ago, I didn't achieve half of what I set out to achieve. But look, we're starting to get there now. But really, as I set up Gormley Capital, my own business in 2015, it's a kind of a, a corporate advisory fundraising business. But I've always liked to try and get involved in a few businesses and try and bring the expertise of the finance and, and you know, build these businesses to scale, to sell them on. So little ass just happened. I was introduced to Philip Martin about three years ago. We got on well. I helped him out with certain things. And Philip has, has another business now, um, Blanco Nino, that's going very well. So he just didn't have the time. So, you know, he said, look, would you come on board? Would you take it over and scale this business? So that's really why I did. And we're actually, I'm, I'm in discussions now in another uh, kind of a new concept, high-end cafe sandwich bar business that I'm currently talking to the current owner about getting involved in that. So, you know, while, while there's a lot of uncertainty in the current climate while COVID is going on, there is opportunity, you know, if you're, if you're willing to take the, take the step or the plunge, some people might say. Yeah, sure. Now, um, sell it to us, uh, if you like. This is your opportunity for the sales pitch. Why, if somebody's thinking of getting a, a takeaway, um, why Mexican? And what's your best seller? Um, why Mexican? Mexican, well, f- for our look, and I'm just speaking, I suppose I'm here for little ass. All our food is freshly prepared. Um, so, you know, it's, fre- it's, it's prepared daily. It's prepared in store. Um, and what I would say is the burritos, I think one of the reasons they proved, they're very popular, obviously, but it's a very, it's a filling takeaway. So, you know, you get a burrito at lunchtime or in the afternoon, you probably won't eat anything again that evening. So, you know, Mexican was always popular. Um, I suppose it's only in the last number of years with guys like Boojum and, and Talteca and these guys coming in, it's probably getting a wider audience now. Um, people are kind of realizing now what it is and, and what it entails. And I think as a result of that, it has benefited us in the sense that, you know, people are recognising us, they're trying us, and because then the quality of the food, you know, they're coming back. And I think, you know, the delivery there, as I said last week, of 89 new customers is kind of highlighting that fact. And the restaurant trade is traditionally a tough, tough business to be in. It's quite attritional. There's always a lot of turnover. There are a lot of fads uh, come along, a lot of trends come and go. Are you confident that uh, Little Ass will be able to will, will be able to see it through? If you like, not just dealing with the pandemic, but dealing with all of the natural kind of vagaries of the industry. 
Yeah, I think Kieran, it will. You know, I think if your if your offering is good, um, you can stay. But I agree with you; it's getting tougher. As I said, look, when I got involved, it was it was very much a a steep learning curve. But you know, I think if your product is good, there's always going to be a requirement for it. What I liked again about Little Ass was it's a recognisable brand. So. One of the things I'm currently looking at doing is, is starting to look at other revenue streams. Uh, we're just about to start launching in a kind of small way, but hoping to build is kind of clothing, T-shirts, caps, stuff like that with the brand on it. We're now looking as well. We're doing a whole new website, so we're just holding off until we have that to do all of this. But, you know, we're going to have a clothing range. We're going to start doing the, the takeaway kits as well. So... You know, look, you, you got to keep moving, I suppose, and you got to keep kind of looking at what you're offering. We've just kind of updated our brand a bit. It hadn't been updated since since Philip started it, so we've just done that. So, yeah, look, you, you got to keep moving, I suppose, to stand still, um, and that's what we're doing. But you're right, if you know, from a when you look at it purely from a financial position, you can generally kind of get to grips with your turnover and you can manage your kind of cost of sales. It's, it's what goes on below that I've, I've always found has been hard, you know, electricity, all, all those. And that's the problem. Small businesses like this, you know, you can be going well to kind of show a nice, you know, reasonable profit. And then it just takes something small and all of a sudden you're showing a loss. So I think that has been a, a real eye-opener for me that, you, you know, you have to control every line of your P&L or else you're just going to get, you'll, you'll get yourself into trouble if you take your eye off the ball. And finally, Greg, um, I, I wonder whether that, that little item that you talk about that might push you in the wrong direction. Could that be a move back to level five restrictions, which is, you know, in essence, the kind of lockdown that we had back in March? We were kind of threatened with it last weekend. The government didn't go down that route. But you never know, maybe in a few weeks, if, uh, if the numbers don't turn around in terms of COVID cases, maybe we'll, maybe we'll end up at level five at some point in the near future. Yeah, look, I think that is a worry, Kieran. As I said, look, if, if I'm correct, I think a level five, we can still do takeaway now. I, I think that's correct. But, you know, I suppose where I see the issue, just say in level five, we had to close, you know, you close it down, you stop and, and your, your staff then are, are going to the wage subsidy. At the moment when there's uncertainty, like, are we going to level five? Are we? That, I think, is causing more. As I said to you, the last couple of days there since, since kind of, are we going to level five? Are we not? And then we hit on level three. We have seen the turnover drop. So it just brings an uncertainty. So look, yeah, look, level five won't be good. I'd be the first to say it across. But it's the uncertainty sometimes can cause more trouble because people really don't know, you know where they're coming or going. Okay, Greg, well, listen, we wish you well with uh, Little Ass Burrito Bar and your new premises in Temple Bar. If you do uh, decide to invest in that cafe, upmarket cafe and sandwich chain, you might uh, come back and tell us all about it on Inside Business. But in the meantime, uh, Greg Gormley, thank you for joining us. Kieran, thank you very much. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Donna Kilmurray of Davy about the markets. Back in a few moments. At Davy, we know your well-being should be financial as well as personal. And now, when it's a little more challenging, if you're in a position where you have a pension, it's never been more important to get active. So talk to one of our trusted advisors now, and we can help you find a solution for your pension needs. A solution that could help you feel better about your financial future. Let's start the conversation. Call us today or search Davy. Davy, it's not just business, it's personal. 
Janie Davy Trading as Davy is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. We take our responsibilities personally. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, in this part of the show, I'm talking to Donna Kilmurray, Chief Investment Officer of Davy, about the latest day of play in the markets. I began by asking him about the impact of COVID on equity markets since lockdown restrictions were introduced around the world in March. Now, Donna Kilmurray, thank you for joining Inside Business. Perhaps you could just uh, set the landscape out uh, in terms of markets and how they perform since March, because that's when COVID hit. That's when economies around the world started to go into lockdown. And it's been a bit of a roller coaster, particularly for equities since then. Yeah, it definitely has. And, you know, to put the whole thing in perspective, the stock market surprisingly well performed since the March bottom. You know, if you'd asked us back then what we saw for the next, say, 12, 24 months, we're way ahead of where we thought we were going to be. And it's not just a level, it's also dispersion across stocks. The market has been picking the winners and picking the losers, and the difference in performance has been huge. And it's actually bigger than what we saw between winners and losers of the 90s. Back then, tech and the growth stocks killed the value market. This time, tech and the growth stocks are even further ahead of value than they were back then. So surprising level recovery and surprising dispersion recovery. Yeah, maybe let's just talk about some of those winners and losers. Let's take the, the winners. I guess Amazon kind of stands out as a particular Winner, but there must be others in the uh, tech sector uh, and indeed in pharma. Yeah, look, this comes back to human nature. We love stories, right? We love good stories, we love bad stories. And when we invest, sometimes it's easier to cling to a story than it is to look at the numbers. And you're right, Amazon has been a massive high flyer, but also the big tech names, you know, Apple has been out there, Microsoft, Alphabet, all those big guys. Now, Apple's an interesting one. The price of Apple has gone up so far, despite the stock split. Apple is now worth as a company twice what it was two years ago. So late 2018, it was worth a trillion. Late this year, it was worth two trillion. Apple's earnings haven't gone up with that much. So the market hasn't necessarily been looking at the numbers. They just fall in love with the story. And it's neat. the story's an easy one. If you think about how the economy's going to look when we're going through more lockdowns in the future, whatever the new economy's going to look like after that, technology is the answer to a lot of the questions. So people are latching on to the idea that technology is going to be the future. Now, of course it is, but at some point, the future can't be as good people price in, at some point you pay too high price for that. And that to us feels like we've been paying, we are paying a bit too much a high price for those high flyers. Healthcare, you mentioned, healthcare's been a little bit different and healthcare is, is a different story there. On the one hand, you do have the fact that healthcare is a solution to the virus problem. You also have what's coming down the line in the US election. The idea that the Democrats don't like healthcare companies as much as Republicans might, and therefore you might see extra regulation or extra taxes on them. And that's actually dampened the healthcare. There were winners coming into the virus trough, but on the way out, they've underperformed. Yeah. What about the losers then? Who have been the big losers in this pandemic? Well, on the stock side, it's any, any story you can tell about an industry that's not going to come back or it's going to be crippled for years. So naturally, things like airlines, things like transport, things like leisure, all the things that get knocked out by lack of contact, lack of, lack of travel. Um, now, some of these sectors were in trouble beforehand. If you look at the auto sector, if you look at the airlines, if you look at the energy sector even, these were in trouble before the crisis, but the story's gotten worse for them. There are secular reasons why they're unattractive, you know, falling oil demand growth, falling car uh, purchases growth, falling, you know, people more concerned about travel and transport. They've only gotten worse. So you, there's a mix-up of a secular long-term problem in those sectors and the short-term story, which is people don't see them getting on planes anytime soon, booking holidays anytime soon, all that stuff. So you've got, a, you've got a blend of two really bad situations, a secular decline and a cyclical, very dim outlook. So that obviously impacts the likes of Ryanair, um, whom we all know and uh, sometimes love, uh, IEG, which owns Aer Lingus, obviously, uh, and other airlines that we're very familiar with, like Air France, Lufthansa, all of the American carriers. Is it the case that they're really going to be out of favour now for the next two or three years? 
Well, as a sector, yes. But even within the sector, you've got winners and losers again. And you look at some of the airlines, and I'm not a stock picker, not making recommendations here. But if you look at some of the airlines which have been very good at managing their cash flow, managing their costs, managing their fleet costs, for example, and some which simply haven't. Some had bloated costs, bloated fleets. The ones which are in better place beforehand are coming out of this in much better relative terms. So the sector is definitely going to struggle, but there are winners and definite losers within that at the same time. Donna, as a chief investment officer, how has the pandemic influenced the way you look at investments now? How has it changed how you strategize around it and how you advise clients? How long have you got? This is a, this is a big question. We talked a little bit how how well the market had done since the crisis. And the whole landscape is one, when you look at returns versus the risk, the, that blend has gotten less attractive. So you look at the safer end of the asset spectrum, you look at uh, what you do with cash and bonds. Now, central banks made it very, very clear they're not moving cash rates anytime soon. The central banks are buying bonds, keeping yields down. And the more debt the governments rack up to spend in, on stimulus, the longer they're going to, have to keep those bond yields low to let governments finance themselves. So on the cash and bond side of the, of the portfolio, you're seeing no return prospects for many, many years. So the big question is there, what do we do for safety? On the growth side of the portfolio, as you mentioned earlier, stocks have done surprisingly better than we expected. So normally, if you look at a recovery, if you look at this time around, the market was up by 30%, the world market, 30% in a month, 40% in two or three months, and by five months, up 50%. Normally, that takes several years to happen. So all the turns we encourage clients to go after when you get a recovery situation, most of them have happened already. So whether you're looking at the safe part of the portfolio, where there's very little safety and yields are rock bottom, or the growth part portfolio, where prospects, not necessarily growth prospects are weak, but return prospects are weak because of the price levels, all across the board, you're looking at very, very unattractive prices, very, sorry, unattractive prospects for returns. What that means is clients look very, very carefully at what they need. You know, how much cash they need in the next few years, how much growth they need for the future. And it usually means in both cases, you have to take more risk. And, you know, risk in a world where we've got governments pushing prices left, right and centre, we've got very uncertain elections coming up. It's very tough to be comfortable taking risk. But unfortunately, we look at the options, most people are going to have to take more risk. Right. Um, now, if you're approaching pension age, let's say, let's say you're only a few years away from pension age, taking risk isn't really something you want to do, is it? So where do they go for a safe haven? Well, this is a tough one because that's a key word. What's a safe haven? And safety depends on what risk you're worried about. If you're worried about spending for the next few years, in other words, if you're about to retire, you need spending for the next few years of your retirement, you can't take risk with that. It's got to be in those safe assets. And the penalty is no returns. But assuming your pension's going to do for several decades, hopefully, for, for that longer term money, the safest asset is still stocks. So you have to look very carefully what your needs are for the next few years of your retirement and then the longer term of your retirement and split your assets up accordingly. So unfortunately, it does mean for those guys, even for those guys, taking more risk than might, you might normally see in a pension fund. Sure. Now, we hear a lot about the American election and we hear a lot about the Brexit talks and the fact that there might be a no-deal Brexit come the end of the year. What impact will those two events have on markets? Well, the election is, is probably the much bigger one, the US election. Brexit, for better or for worse, is a bit more of a local issue. It's going to hurt the UK market and unfortunately the Irish market. It's going to have a big impact on sterling. But for global portfolios, the UK is a relatively small part of the world these days. The bigger risk is, as you mentioned, it's the US election. Now, as far as election goes... What are the risks? We could have a Trump win, we could have a Biden win, we could have a democratic clean sweep, which might bring higher taxes. But in all those cases, you're going to look, you're going to see more spending than taxes after the election, whoever wins. So whether it's Biden, Biden with full Democrat control, or Trump, you're looking at expansionary policy, which is good for markets. The real risk 
for the election in the US is a contested outcome. In other words, we get a situation where we don't know who the winner is for weeks or months after the actual election. A bit like Gore versus Bush in 2000, but you know, several times worse. Now, you ask us what the chance of that is, most people tell us it's probably 10, 20%. So it could happen, but even if it does happen, we will eventually get a government, we will eventually get more spending. So it's more near-term risk than long-term risk. This lower for longer interest rate environment, uh, in your opinion, Donna, how long is that going to continue for? Well, for no good news there. Now, the ECB hasn't been as clear as the Fed. The Fed in the US has been it clear by voting and by telling us what they expect. They don't see any movement in interest rates in, in the US for an, at least the next three years. The ECB is a bit more circumspect. They've told us about the need for inflation, the need for growth. But if you look at the market's pricing for ECB rates, they're not seeing positive rates until 2028 at the earliest. Now, that's market pricing. That can change. But our best guess is you won't see positive rates in the Eurozone for at least five years. And in terms of Ireland's ability to fund itself on the markets, because at the minute we're, we're looking at a situation where we're going to have a deficit this year between 25 and 30 billion euros. So that's got to be plugged with uh, funding from the markets. We're doing okay at the minute. We're able to get it at very low interest rates, uh, which is fine. But just wondering how long that might continue for. Or, you know, what are the pressure points that might turn the markets away from lending to Ireland at really low interest rates? If we're looking at some good news, there is some good news here, which is that Ireland is a relative success story. I mean, relative compared to other countries that are in a much worse situation. Because our economy has a huge external sector, which is doing pretty well, tech and pharma, the overall Irish economy is doing better than we would have expected. Now, domestically, we are struggling, there's no doubt about it. So we are going to have large deficits. We are going to borrow a lot more than we would have done in previous years. Now, if you go back to 10 years or 12 years ago in the financial crisis, people were very, very worried, could governments fund themselves? And then central banks came in and started buying those bonds, started funding governments who were doing the right things. At the time, it was quite controversial. It's not controversial at all anymore. The idea that in the past, if your government debt to GDP went over 80 90%, you were in trouble, that's gone. The US is approaching 100 and more, UK is approaching 100. All the big economies in Europe, apart from Germany perhaps, are approaching 100 are already higher than that. So the old idea that there's a debt level beyond which you get in big trouble, that's gone. What really matters is, can you afford to finance that debt? And at zero yields, we can finance it indefinitely, like Japan does. But the question of when will it come to an end, that's really the risk of inflation. At some point, and this could be four or five, six years down the line, inflation picks up and zero bond yields no longer make sense. Now, at that point, central banks have a choice to make. Do they keep buying the bonds, keep the yields down, or let them go back up to fight inflation. That's when we're going to have trouble. But that could be at least five or six years away. And just in terms of next year, Donna, because this year is a bit of a wipeout for a lot of companies, a lot of sectors, and a lot of people. Uh, but in terms of next year, everybody, I suppose, is, uh, is hoping that the vaccine will come on stream very quickly. It'll be available to uh, a large number of people, to the mass of population. And just wondering how that might affect markets. Are we going to see, if, if that happens, let's say it happens around March, April of next year, we have a vaccine, it's tried and tested, and it's going to be rolled out on a mass uh, basis. What kind of difference would that make to, to markets? Or will it make any difference? Well, unfortunately, it probably won't make much difference because it's already in the expectations. If you ask strategists who, perform, who do earnings expectations for next year or GDP expectations, they'll tell you that they're baking in a vaccine being ready by, you know, second or third quarter of next year. Now, if it happens sooner, that'll be great. That'll definitely help markets. If it happens a lot longer, say in 2022, that's a big risk because all the earnings forecasts for next year assume we'll have GDP back up close to 2019 levels by the end of next year, 2021. And that's based on having a vaccine ready. Now, the other risk is not just the vaccine being ready. It's also the risk that people won't take the vaccine. 
Do you see polls in the US there are people saying they won't take a vaccine even if it's cleared by the the FDA and all those people that, that matter? So the, the risks are twofold. One, that the vaccine is not ready. And two, if it is ready, that people don't take it. Our base case assumption is that it will be ready by the middle of next year, maybe second or third quarter. So that's baked into the market already. Our worry is that people won't take it. Wow. It seems extraordinary on this side of the Atlantic anyway to think that people wouldn't take the vaccine when it becomes available. I mean, there's a, the, I think there's a waiting list for the flu jab, never mind the, the COVID jab, uh, whenever that might come. Um, Donna, can I just ask you in terms of Davy's own business model, how have you guys responded to the pandemic? Obviously, everything was locked down in March. I presume people were working from home. How has it impacted on Davy's business? Well, actually, actually Davy's been surprisingly resilient. And I, I'm only back in Davy a year. I moved back from London at the end of last year. And it's been remarkable um, how people have adapted. You know, we're obeying, following all the government guidelines that we can, but the technology is strong enough people can work from home if they need to, work in the office where applicable. So the business continued. Um, what's really been, I think, the most important part when it comes to our client contact is that we keep in touch, keep them informed, but also keep them with their financial plan. One of the things that gets overlooked in these kind of situations, people panic and talk about the near term, but actually the long-term financial plan is by far the most important thing. And if anything, this is reminding people they need to have a plan. And that's been something we've focused on heavily this year. People want to know what our view is in the markets, but again, it really comes back to when do they need the money, like your pension example, how much can they save, how long-term have they got for the growth. So financial plans have been our main focus this year. Okay, and for investors who are looking for investment opportunities, what direction would you point them in? Well, again, we joke with this, but the best investment is usually one you can stick with and the worst investor is one that you can't stick with and you chop and change coming out of the market. So the best option depends on what you're trying to do. So if people do need money for the next few months, then cash is still king. Longer term, cash is the worst thing you can hold. So longer term, we are still recommending, despite all the high valuations we talked about earlier, we are still recommending a global stock portfolio. Now, tactically, we have tilted that portfolio a little bit in the last month or so. We do think some sectors have done better than expected since recovery since the trough rather, and some sectors have, have participated less than usual, and they will be industrials, financials, those typical cyclical sectors. So we do recommend a global stock portfolio, and we are tilting towards the more cyclical sectors. But importantly, we're not bottom fishing. We're not buying the stuff you talked about at the start, which is really struggling. Great. Okay, well, some good advice there, I think, for investors. Uh, Donna Kilmurray, we might catch on uh, at some stage uh, a little later on this year, maybe early next year even, and see how, you, uh, see how those uh, opportunities have worked out. In the meantime, stay safe. Thanks very much. Pleasure. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Greg Gormley and Donna Kilmurray. Thanks also to our sponsor, Davy Group, for its continued support. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon on sound. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.